You can turn with me to James chapter 1 and verse 13. Uh, A few years ago, I read a news story about the Metropolitan Insurance Company. Apparently, they received the following explanation for accidents that their policyholders had had, automobile accidents. First one wrote, an invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. (laughs) Second, the guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. As I reached an intersection, a huge hedge sprang up, obscuring my vision. Pop, there's the hedge. Telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. And then this was my favorite. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) So we all make excuses, right? When we're confronted with our own failures or mistakes or even sin, we look around to find someone to blame. Where did that all begin? The dawn of human history. Adam was confronted with his sin, and what did he say? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. But I particularly like Adam's explanation. The woman that you gave to be with me. Remember, just a short time earlier, we don't know how, how was it you know, hours or days or whatever. They probably, it had probably been days, maybe weeks. God had brought Eve to Adam and he said, wow, this is amazing. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Finally, one who's a a companion for me, the perfect fit. And now here he is, he's saying, God, you set me up, right? (laughs) The woman that you gave God to be with me. He doesn't just blame Eve, he blames God. God, you created these circumstances that caused my failure. James is going to tell us, you will never overcome your sin until you own up to your sin. See, it is uh, tempting for us when we are uh, tested and tried and we fall into sin to look for someone else to blame, some other person around us or even God. James won't let us go there. He says very clearly, "You, you can't overcome sin until you own sin and acknowledge you are responsible. I want you to read with me James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We've been out of James for a week. Maybe you haven't picked up the book and read it uh, in a few days. So let's remember our context. The setting is this. James is writing to a group of people who are suffering. They are experiencing incredible trials. The trial first of, of poverty. He is writing to a group of people who are poor. And so they are struggling materially in this world. And because of their poverty, they are at the very bottom rung of the social ladder and they are being oppressed by those who are rich and powerful. They're being also persecuted for their faith. That's a trial that God has allowed in their lives. But that trial has also become a temptation for them. Because when we're in the midst of a trial, there's something within us that says, I gotta get out, I gotta get out, I gotta get out. And sometimes the way of escape is through sin, even if just for a moment. 
And these people who are being oppressed by those who are wealthy, who are struggling financially and materially, are being tempted to sin. As they are being uh, struggling with their, their finances and, and their needs, a rich person comes into their midst, and what do they do? Well, they show that person special favor. Why? So they can get something from that person. That's sin. And when another poor person comes in, another brother in Christ who has a need, they are tempted and they become greedy because they say, I don't have enough for myself. And when they enter out into society and the rich are oppressing them, they are tempted to lash out verbally or maybe even physically, violently against them. And that trial from God has become a temptation. And when they fall to the temptation and they sin, they say, God, you set me up. God, you allowed these circumstances that have led to my failure. And James says, whoa, stop right there. You need to own it. It's your sin. You will never overcome your sin until you own up to your sin. In other words, don't blame God. Read with me again, chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. James' argument is very simple. He says, don't blame God for two reasons. First, God is untemptable. That's not a word in English, but that's what it means in Greek. He cannot be tempted. He is untemptable. James is referring to the absolute holiness of God. Holiness means at its essence that God is separate or different. He is not like us. In this respect, he is absolutely and utterly morally pure. God is untemptable. Earlier, Johnny read Isaiah chapter 6. In the throne room of God, the angels are crying out. One is calling to another. Back and forth, they're singing a song. And they say this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Hebrew, to emphasize something, you say it twice. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were dead, dead, or really died. To emphasize the holiness of God, it's actually said three times. Holy, holy, holy. Absolutely perfect in his holiness. This theme is reiterated from Genesis through Isaiah all the way to the book of Revelation. Back in the throne room of God again. Four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they don't stop singing this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In other words, from the day of creation, God made angels and he surrounded his throne room with angelic singers. And what have they been doing forever since they were created? Singing about the fundamental and central attribute of God, and that is he is holy. He's not like us. Sin is not enticing to him whatsoever. John put it in very visual terms for us. He says, this is the message we have heard from him. We announce to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all whatsoever. Okay? God is perfectly holy in himself. And James says, because of that, God is perfectly holy in his relationship with you. God is not a tempter. That's not what God does. Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not tempt anyone. This is the attribute of the goodness of God. We're going to pick this up next week, but I want to give you just a little preview. Read with me verses 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, that is, about God. 
and who he is, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That is, God is immutable in his goodness. He never acts in such a way to harm you. God is good. God is untemptable. God is not a tempter. However, God does test his people. That's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. As we've jumped into the book of James, we're talking about trials and testing. James says God does test his people. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various kinds of trial. God doesn't always just reach down and rescue the Christian from every hard situation that happens on the earth. God does allow trials and testing in our lives. He doesn't tempt us, but he does test us. Let me give you one very well-known biblical illustration, Genesis 22. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. This event is held up as the greatest test that a human ever went through. I can't can't imagine anything more difficult. Was God tempting Abraham? Was he enticing him to sin? No, not at all. God was testing Abraham. God was refining Abraham's faith so that he could reward Abraham's faith. He was refining Abraham's faith so that he could take Abraham and hold Abraham up in front of all of humanity and say, you want to know what it looks like to walk with me when when you, you don't understand everything that I'm doing in your life and yet you still trust? Let me show you Abraham. When what God said made absolutely no sense, God, you gave me this son who who will be my heir. He's the one through whom all of the promises are going to come and through whom you're going to bless all of the nations. And now you're saying, put him to death? I don't understand. But it says Abraham got up early in the morning. He didn't sleep in. And he went and obeyed. God was refining his faith so that he could reward his faith. God does test his people. But a trial can turn into a temptation. Now, this is really important to note to understand this passage. In Greek, the word for test or trial or temptation is exactly the same word. Okay? Test, trial, temptation is the same word in Greek. Perosmos. It's the same word. How do you know which it is? You only know from the context. So, James 1.13 could read like this. Let no one say when he is tested, I am being tested by God. Or it could read, let no one say when he is tested, I'm being tempted by God. Or let no one say, you get the point, right? It could be tested or tempted. could be either one. How do you know? Well, the original readers, it was very clear because of the context that it should read like this. Let no one say when he is tested, I am being tempted by God. Okay? James is transitioning in this verse from a discussion of trials, 1, 2 through 12, temptation. In other words, the same event or circumstance or an experience in our life can have two outcomes. It could be a trial that we experience from God in which he refines our faith and rewards us. It could turn into a temptation from Satan. 
What is a trial or a test? It's a challenge designed to grow us and bring us honor. It refines our faith so God can reward our faith. What is a temptation? It's an enticement designed to ensnare us in sin and destroy our lives. God does not ensnare us. But that trial can become a temptation when we doubt the character of God. Same event, same experience, same circumstance in our life. God's intention is to grow us up into maturity. Satan's intention is to take that experience and to crush us. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. Matthew chapter 4 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. See the paradox there? Who's Jesus following? The Spirit of God. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And the devil's intention was to tempt him. Was it God's intention to ensnare Jesus in sin? No, not at all. It was Satan's intention. God's intention was to allow Jesus to go into the wilderness. And in his hardship, in his extreme hunger, to trust only in the Father. So that God could take the life and the example of Jesus, he could put it in front of us and say, this is what is possible. When any man or any woman completely depends upon me in the midst of trial and tribulation and suffering, and they count me as as good and worthy of trust, even when they don't understand what I'm doing, they cling to me, this this is what can happen. And then God can take us and he can hold us up in front of others and say, look, this is what it looks like for a man or woman to walk with me. When when life is falling apart around them, when they're suffering trials and tribulation, when they don't understand what I'm doing, follow that example. As they follow the example of Christ, he can take our lives, he can hold it up even in front of the angelic hosts and say, see, this is a man or a woman who's loyal to me. Satan's intention was to ensnare Jesus in sin so that he could bring dishonor to God and embarrass God in front of all of creation. That's what happened in the book of Job, isn't it? All the angelic hosts, they come in, including the demonic forces and Satan. They're giving a report. They're checking in. Are they functioning according to God's boundaries? Are they doing what God has said? And Satan steps up, chief of the demonic forces, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? Job is an example. He's he's holding Job up in the throne room of God. Which is what he wants to do with your life and my life. And he says, have you you thought about Job? And and, and Satan says, oh, I've thought about him. Yeah, I got got plans. Just, you know, the only reason he trusts you is because everything's going good. Let me at him. And God allows Satan to tempt. God is not trying to ensnare Job in sin. God is allowing trial in Job's life so that his faith can be refined and he can be rewarded. Satan wants to crush Job's faith and embarrass God. That's what's going on in our lives right now. Who wins? God wins. God wins. Job is suffering physically and he says... In spite of his, his counselors, you know, hey, just, you know, you're obviously sinning, just repent. And his wife says, curse God and die. Get it over with, man. And Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Wow. And then God can come back again a second time and say, hey, have you thought about Job? 
Wow. Satan goes at him again. And what does Job say? No, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. It doesn't matter what happens in my life. Even if I don't understand it and life is falling down around me, I know God is good. And in the end, though my body is crushed and fails, yet I will see the Lord. I know how it all turns out and I trust him. Have you considered my servant, Job? Have you considered my servant, Mike? Have you considered my servant, Betty? And they're struggling. And yet they cling to God and his faithfulness. I know that some of you are struggling right now. God is testing your faith. And Satan would love to crush that faith and embarrass God. And God is saying, no, trust me. Let me give you one other illustration. Deuteronomy chapter 8, which forms the foundation of Jesus' defense in the wilderness. Moses says, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Remember again the context. The first generation that God led out of Egypt, he brought them into the wilderness. Why? To tempt them to sin, to ensnare them in sin? No, to refine their faith because he wanted to reward their faith with the promised land. And he knew in order for them to go in and enjoy this reward in the promised land, they're going to have to fight giants. And they're not ready to fight giants. They've never fought before. They've been slaves their whole lives. I need to teach them to trust me when it's hard. Because they're going to walk in and they're going to be afraid. These giants are bigger than us. They're stronger than us. The cities are fortified. They have to learn to trust me when it's hard. So he brought them into the wilderness to test them and try them. And he said, I even made that generation no hunger. So they turn to me and say, whatever comes from the mouth of God, that's enough. But what happened with that generation? They said, Moses, you and your God brought us into the wilderness to kill us. They doubted the goodness of God. And so God couldn't reward them. Because their faith failed. So that generation died off. Their children wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. God made them wander for 40 years. What was he doing? Was he trying to entice them to sin? No. He was refining their faith so he could reward that generation with the promised land. Now Moses comes back a second time and he says, remember, this is why God left you in the wilderness for 40 years. He wanted to humble you and test you so he could make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Because you're going to walk up to the gates of Jericho and you're going to say, those walls are 50 feet high. We cannot in any way, shape or form knock them down. What do we do, God? They learned to trust in God. See, one event, one singular experience, Satan's purpose is to to crush your faith and embarrass God with your life. God's purpose is to refine that faith and make that faith mature so that he can reward that faith. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. We noted that a few weeks ago. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. The trial that God has allowed turns into into a temptation when we doubt the goodness of God. 
When we doubt the goodness of God, we open ourselves up. We make ourselves vulnerable to all different forms of temptation because we've believed one lie about God. We might believe another lie about God. It all starts with doubting the goodness of God. And James says, look, I need to remind you of something. God is good. God is absolutely holy. He can't even be tempted, and he certainly doesn't tempt you. Every good and perfect gift that comes down from above, that's from the immutable, unchangeable, amazing God. Don't blame God. You need to own it. You need to own it. You can never overcome your own sin until you accept responsibility for your sin. Accept it. Read with me again, chapter 1, verse 14. James says, no, instead, it's not God who's tempting you, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James describes here a a downward progression of sin. It begins like this. First, we're tempted by lust. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and he's enticed by his own lust. And, you know, normally when we hear the word lust, we think of sexual sin, but lust can pertain basically to any overwhelming desire that we have that's outside of the will of God. It doesn't have to be just sexual. It can be anything that we say, I must have that, when God has said no. Notice also he says, this is, this is your own lust. This is your own lust. Where does that come from? Remember, there are three sources of temptation that the Bible talks about. There's the world, and there's the devil, and there's the flesh. The world is this uh, cosmos, this order that we live in, which hates God. And it has all kinds of enticements in it, and we, we see those, and it stirs something us, up in us. There is Satan and his demonic forces that come, sometimes come, and they interact in our world, and they try to entice something in us. But James is saying, but really, they would have no effect or force in your life if there wasn't something broken in you. Where does that come from? Well, we were born with that. Paul calls it flesh. James is calling it lust. We were born in Adam and Eve. We inherited something from Adam and Eve, and that is this, this, this bent towards saying, no, we will figure out our own way to live life. We're going to go our own way. We want what we want, we're going to get what we want, and we're going to do it independently from God. We can find life and make life work independently from God. In other words, we are born with that propensity. We are born sinners. That's why we sin. We don't become sinners The first time we sin, we are born sinners, and that's why we sin, which is not an excuse for our sin, but it is an explanation of why we sin. And James is saying, we're responsible. Okay, this is our lust. This is our lust. Notice again what he says. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and he is enticed by his own lust. And he uses here a figure of speech from fishing. He says, each one is tempted when the bait passes in front, okay? It is to to be uh, lured in as with bait, to be ensnared. And what James is saying is, we bait our own hook, okay? That's the image he's using. He's saying, we bait our own hook. But that's not sin. That's temptation, That's temptation. 
We can't help the fact that we will be tempted in this world order and by satanic attack and by the lusts that happen within, but that's not sin. It's not sin until we take the bait. Remember what Martin Luther said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair, right? But here's the progression. Each one is tempted when he is uh, enticed or he is lured in as with bait by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. So he switches now from a a fishing metaphor to childbirth. So there's a seed that's planted, and when that seed becomes implanted, that seed gives birth to sin. Sin happens in our life when we actually take the bait. We let the bird build the nest in our hair. We don't knock it away. And then sin, he says, grows into death. He continues this analogy. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished or when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Now, James isn't concerned at this point with defining sin. If you read the book of James, you'll see that sin includes um, violating a known command of God. It also includes not doing things that your conscience says is right. To him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, well, that's sin too. It includes sins directly against God and sins against fellow believers. It includes this wide variety of things. James isn't really concerned with defining sin right now. What he's concerned about is this. If you don't bat the temptation away and avoid the bait, and you take the bait and you sin, but then you don't spit the hook, then that sin is going to continue to fester in your life and it's going to go on and it will give birth or grow into death. In other words, sin will grow up to a point of maturity, so to speak, that it can have its own children and the child of sin is death. And what's he talking about here with death? I want you to turn to James chapter 5, verse 20. It's the only other place that James uses this word death. James 5 In verse 20, let's start in verse 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In 520, he is talking about physical death. In 515 through 20, he says, sin sometimes creates illness in our lives. And when that sin is not repented of, when we don't spit the hook, when we allow sin to fester in our lives, then it becomes more and more consequential in our lives. And ultimately, he says, that sin can actually lead to physical death. That's what James is talking about. James isn't talking about heaven and hell. He's not talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about physical consequences of sin on this earth. He's talking from a very Old Testament mindset. One illustration from the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 18, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and he dies, okay, physical death. He dies because of his iniquity, which he has committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Literally, he will save his soul. Same phrase that James used in 520. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more. What does it mean to save the soul? It means to rescue your physical life from the physical consequences of sin. So for each of us, 
The first time we sinned, we didn't die physically, did we? No, obviously not. <laughs> Here we are. We would all be dead. We'd all be dead. So what's James talking about? Imagine this. Imagine this metaphor. He, he in a sense, is describing sin as, as a pathway. And all along this pathway of sin, there are bad consequences. When you sin against God, you can't know the wisdom of God. You can't figure life out. When you sin against God, you become selfish and you're of no good to anyone else. When you sin against God, you get into conflicts in your life. When you sin against God, you come under God's discipline. And when you don't repent and you don't repent and you don't repent, he said this pathway is a pathway of destruction and you're driving yourself into a cul-de-sac and the cul-de-sac is marked death. That's the ultimate consequence of sin. Will each and every person face it? No, because hopefully as believers, we hear the voice of the Spirit and we say, let me get out of this pathway. Let me get off of this, this roadway that is moving toward death. But that's the final consequence of sin that is not repented of. And so James says, get off. Get off. Stop. Own your sin. Don't blame God, but take responsibility. Because if you're blaming another person or you're blaming God, you can't acknowledge where this sin has come from and you can't get off the hook. You can't get out of the pathway. And it's a pathway that ultimately moves toward death. So please, he says, stop. God is good. God can't be tempted and God doesn't tempt you. But you're responsible. You will never overcome your sin until you own up to your sin. Now, Christians, the moment that you trusted Jesus Christ, the penalty of your sin is removed. You will not be separated from God. You will have life forever with God. That is the reward of faith. You believe God removes the penalty or the debt of sin. And all you have to do is believe. Just trust Jesus died for my sins. It will always be removed. God won't rescind it. That is eternal security in Christ. Okay? The penalty or the debt is completely removed. However, the earthly consequences for your sin are not removed. Okay? You live in, in a universe that has moral order because of God. And when non-Christians sin or when Christians sin, there are consequences. Are they immediate? No, they're not always immediate. And that's what tempts us sometimes to sin a little bit more. But there are consequences. They do catch up. Be sure your sins will find you out. There will be consequences. And that's what James is saying. Remember, James' mindset is, it's, it's very Old Testament. It's very proverbial. He's saying, when you live well, you know, that extends life and makes life rich and fulfilling, gives you wisdom. When you live foolishly and you sin, life is shortened. Life is shortened. Okay, I want to give you two applications. We're looking at those applications. Uh, if I could, can I have the folks who are serving us communion this morning, would you go back and, and get prepared? Okay, two, cons- uh, two applications I want to give. First, don't take the bait. Okay? Don't take the bait. Learn the things that you are, are the temptations that you are vulnerable to. Don't, don't swim in that pond. If you know that there are are temptations, there are baits that are really alluring to you. Um, Paul put it like this in Romans 13. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Don't don't go there. Pass by. 
great illustration of this if you want to read Proverbs chapter 7. The foolish young man, well, he just passes by that lady's house. I'm not going to stop, but I'll just kind of keep wandering around the neighborhood. Okay? And it applies not just to sexual sin, but to any kind of lust. Okay? Don't take the bait. Now, we're going to talk more next week about the provisions God has given us to overcome temptation. But that's the first. Don't, don't, don't take the bait. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man or human experience. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way out, an escape, so that you may be able to endure it. Okay? And maybe just the structure of your life needs to change somewhat so that you are not allured into temptation. Second, get off the hook. If you have taken the bait and there is sin in your life right now that is not confessed, confess. To confess means to say the same thing, literally. You're saying, God, it's not your fault. Yes, there are trials. Yes, there are tribulations. But the fact that I chose to escape into sin is not your fault. I'm responsible God, I thank you that you've forgiven my sin in Christ. Confess. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins. Why? Because he paid the penalty in Jesus Christ. This morning as we close, we have an opportunity to celebrate communion together. And as as, uh, folks come forward in service, I want you just to spend a few moments Asking God's Spirit to search your heart. Remember the church in Corinth, when, when Paul was uh, talking to them about celebrating the Lord's Supper, he said, when you come to celebrate, do this first. Examine your heart, and if there's any barrier in your fellowship with God, confess. Okay, so let's take a few moments and ask God to examine our hearts and confess sin in Jesus Christ. Book of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Jesus' betrayal said, This bread is... My body, my body that's broken for you, for your sin. Let's take the bread together. Then Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, my blood that's poured out to remove the debt of your sin. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you that we can rush boldly into your presence and own up to our sin first because you're not surprised you, you see all things but also because we have a, a merciful and faithful high priest we have Jesus and he stands and he ever lives and he pleads on our behalf because he has made a final payment for our sin and when our sin disrupts that fellowship he is ever available and I pray Father that we'd have soft hearts before you this morning to acknowledge our sin and hearts that are also at the same time bold and confident because we have Jesus.
pray. Father, I pray that we would be humbled before you. Our one defense, our only righteousness is Christ, but we have Christ. Father, I pray that we would come in humility before you. We would have our hearts cleansed by Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that in him you have made a full and a final payment. And his blood is always new, it's fresh. His blood is adequate to restore us to fellowship when it's broken. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his wonderful sacrifice. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.